Hello, and welcome to Leechfest, a medical history podcast where we at least try to think about the pigs. Because today we're talking about animal testing. How are animals used in medical trials? How have pigs influenced the ancient Romans? All of these questions we will attempt to answer today. But first, I'm Mia. And I'm Salem. And how have you been, my dear co-hosts? Because we, we, we gotta edge you, dear audience, before we get into the animals. <laughs> Please don't say that. Please don't say that. I have been pretty good. Um, so I've been talking about the damn bike for the past two or three episodes. Mm-hmm. And I have an update. New bike. <laughs> new, new bike. I decided to get rid of the old one because I was... I was on my way to the clinic, actually, with my bike. And the wheels started bumping and making weird sounds and feeling really weird. Those wheels would have flown off the bike. So I did the walk of shame with the bike back home. I missed my clinic appointment. And then I was like, I need to get a new bike. So now I have a new bike. So hopefully I'm not going to be complaining about the bike. Mm. Tune in for next episode when bike number three (laughs) is going to be introduced to the podcast. I hope not. I'm spending so much money on bad bikes. Um, But with Stockholm bus prices, I mm -hmm. mean, you make that back in half an hour, Mm -hmm. honestly. Mm -hmm. Um, Another thing, I got a new pooter. You did? Well, new. New is doing a lot of work here. I got your old pooter because you got a new pooter. I got a new pooter. Um, So now I have... Two monitors. Yes. Yeah, because I also got a new monitor. New is, again, doing a lot of work here. No, because I got a new monitor. You got a new monitor. You got a new monitor <laughs> because I, you got my old one. I got your old monitors you and old your old monitor, pooters. Old pooter. Old pooter. Yeah, no, I, I love my new pooter. I'm wasting time and money so efficiently right now. Mm. It's great. Got stocks on one monitor, Crusader Kings on the other. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm investing. <laughs> I'm, I'm being... I'm being a Chad this year. Hmm. I'm investing. I got the two monitors set up. Anyway, how have you been? I've been sick. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't been doing... I got a new monitor. I got a really wide monitor. I got one of those ultra-wides. The free can, it takes up half of our dining... It, it does. It like stretches like past the walls of my office. It's great. It <laughs> does not fit in your office. It does not fit. It doesn't fit anywhere. It's taller than me. And I mean, and it's one of those things that like curves a mm-hmm. little bit. And I was I was curious. I was curious. Like, what's the, what's all the fuss about? You know, like I've always had the standard sixteen by nine, like flat computer. But I figured let's live a little. And, but I now because uh, I, I got it for video editing. Uh, sure. I did. <laughs> I did. <laughs> and now I can have like a whole editing timeline just lined up. For miles, basically. It's great. And, it's great. And Crusader Kings on the other half. Exactly. <laughs> but before we get into today's episode, we also want to thank all of our lovely patrons who make this show possible. We wouldn't be able to do this without you. Patrons get access to a special video version of the podcast that includes our lovely faces, as well as notes, a chance to request topics for episodes, and a chance for an in-episode shout-out. We also have other more feral rewards, such as getting to play video games with us and a few others. So definitely check our Patreon out. And in this episode, we of course want to thank one special patron, and that is Chronic Dreamer. Thank you, Chronic Dreamer, for supporting the podcast. And we hope that we can show our appreciation with this little shout out to you. Thank you so much. 
And with all of that said, let's get into the meat of this episode, where we got that dog in us. That dog. <laughs> Salem got that dog in her. <laughs> I don't that got the dog. I don't got the dog. <laughs> I don't know what that means. I've heard a lot of it like on TikTok. Like it means like you're like you're a dog. Like you're, you know, like you're a dog. <laughs> you know, like you're sleazy. And then, and then this episode, we got that dog. No. In it. <laughs> it's a very sad episode, actually. It is. It's quite horrific. Okay, so before you get into the history, I want to give you a quick overview of the use of animal models in medical research today, specifically what animals are used for and why they continue to be irreplaceable, um, though ho hopefully not for long. Medical research, generally speaking, is the study of health and disease in humans. There is basic research where we try to gain understanding of biological processes and there's applied research which is more targeted. So it's research that aims to find solutions to problems. We don't just gain knowledge for the sake of gaining knowledge. Mm. And in the context of medicine, they usually means pharmaceuticals. So why use animal models? One way in which we use them is to model disease. And disease can be modeled either by introducing mutations in the animal's genetic material or by introducing risk factors. And a very simple example would be modeling obesity by overfeeding mice or giving them high-fat food. Mm. <laughs> But you can also test pharmaceuticals. So potential drugs or drugs that are kind of like developed or being studied can be administered to animals to observe their safety and possible side effects before they can be administered to humans in clinical trials. Additionally, we test new surgical procedures and medical devices before we can test them in human patients. So I'll be honest with you, before I went into science, I remember being kind of confused about why we still test on animals, yeah. air quotes. Um, and I thought of it as like something horrible that we continue to do because of tradition and because, you know, it's tradition. Yeah. And like, you know, convenience because we like are not interested in putting in the effort to find something else. When you say tradition, because like, I, I love the fact that we come from two different like, schools of academic thought. Because <laughs> you talk about tradition and just sort of like, yeah, it makes sense like in a medical tradition. But coming from a historical perspective, tradition, I'm like a cultural tradition where once a year the scientists get together to please the <laughs> science god by sacrificing the 10,000 rats. The pig on the altar, yeah. Um, Hail science. Yeah, no, I just mean like because it's it's how it's been done and because it's easy and like animals can't fight back. So, you know, mm. why put in, why, why invest in trying to find a different way? Mm. Like... I remember seeing these pictures of just miserable looking pigs and apes in cages and be like, you know, wonder what kind of person would do that and like why we continue to do this. And while the use of animal models, like now I've been in science for a while and I kind of have understood that we, we use animals because there's no alternative model that is good enough to be used like on a wide scale mm. i do want to emphasize that nobody who works with animals enjoys it um except for the freaks yeah and of course like you're gonna have freaks but they are far and few yeah. few and far between but like most people hate working with animals and actually being qualified to work with animals is very lucrative because nobody wants to do it and i've worked with animals and on a personal note i i, I would say that like for me it's been traumatizing and i don't want to work with animals again 
but you know i i think people do it people who do it they do it because they have to and because currently it's the only way to know whether a drug is ready to be tested in humans yeah i got some stories um, about that yeah and because we currently just literally we lack other models uh, that we can use to model disease or test drugs and I say currently because scientific organizations are making progress towards developing other more ethical models, which I personally am very excited about, and which I will talk about later in the episode. Yeah, you're, you got some personal personal science involved in this, stuff, <laughs> I don't do. I do. I am very. I actually am very happy that I get to talk about something that I hold very dear to my heart mm. in this episode. So, in any case, going back to the animals. The good news is that animal studies come in very late in the research project, and scientific institutions actually have to jump through a lot of hoops to demonstrate that the project actually requires the use of animals, because not all do. Uh, some projects do perfectly fine using other simpler methods. So, for example, running experiments in cells is very common. Cells are cheap and they're easy to maintain and you don't need ethical permits to work with them unless you're working with embryonic stem cells, which is, it's a whole nother discussion. Yeah. But usually they're pretty easy to get. But a downside of cells is that they are a very simple model. Mm. Uh, usually a cell culture includes only one cell type in the layer or in the suspension. Sometimes two or three, but that isn't super common. So you can imagine a layer of cells, let's say neurons on the bottom of a flask, or lymphocytes floating around in cell juice. Lymphocytes. It's white blood cells. Okay, I should know that. <laughs> it's okay. This is a what's a protein moment. <laughs> oh yeah, back when I tried to explain to you what a protein is. I still don't fully get it, I will say. It's bees on a string. And th- no, it's not, not always. And those of you listening right now, how do you not know what a protein is? Do you, audience member, do you know? fully what a protein is because like i kind of know what a protein is you think you know until fully. you have to explain it exactly like yeah. explain in detail what a protein is because yeah. it'll beats on a string but they're not beads and they're not on a string they're like in a weird boogaboo anyway that's just, um, this is irrelevant i'm traumatized from not knowing what proteins are <laughs> the beads on a string theory was me trying to explain to her how they're made of amino acids yeah that's um anyway so, um, yeah, so I'm trying to explain to you how, like, a cell model looks like. They're just, they're cells floating in, in cell media or just at the bottom of a flask. But as you know, tissues and organs are made up of multiple cell types that are organized in a very specific way, in a very clever way that is conducive to the function of the organ. They're not just kind of all thrown together in a ball mm. to do whatever they want. They're, they form a very specific, like, architecture. Mm. So you can see that the current model of a singular cell type chilling in a flask is not the best replicate for an organ. Cells also talk to each other a lot, both locally and globally, all day. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> what about? What are you talking about? <laughs> like signaling, like what to do. <laughs> they constantly have to tell each other what to do. Um, I, did you say cells or organs? Cells. I love the idea of like, I don't know, a group of skin cells being like, what do I do? <laughs> Tell me. <laughs> That's what they do, though. Receive glucose? I can do that. <laughs> um, but they do, like, if... Um, They're just like me. I need clear instructions. If, like, if a cell acts weird, then it, like, if it, if it starts being damaged, 
right? Oh, then, fuck, what do I do? Then it has to like start screaming for help. Like, hey, there's something weird here. Maybe it's a pathogen. Maybe I'm like developing mutations. Uh-oh, I'm becoming cancer cells and the, a cancer mm. cell. And then like the immune system has to come in. Someone come kill me now. Yes, that's what they do. Or, um, you know, if waste products need to be removed. Like it's dirty. Somebody needs to come and that's, get them. That's fun. Or if cells need to migrate to another part of the body. Like they're all, everything that cells do. Like Come help me move. <laughs> come help me move. Come move my couch. That's the mitochondria. It's the power half of the cell. The, mitoco- the mitochondria is inside the cell though. Exactly. That's the couch. Oh, <laughs> the couch is... Hmm. I would think the mitochondria is the fridge. Uh, that makes sense. That's where the energy is. Um, Maybe the oven? Sure. Because it cooks. It could be the oven. <laughs> so... They they're al- they always need to talk. Cells need to talk to each other. So if you reduce a tissue to one or a few types of cells, even some like it oversimplifies the process because the cells suddenly lack all the neighbors mm. that they are used to talking to. So then you end up missing important information. Animal models are useful because they are complex systems which replicate human systems. They have all of those cell types. Yeah. They have that architecture. Another way to study certain processes is by running ex vivo studies, which means out of the living in Latin, um, and refers to tissues that have been removed from an organism. Can I just say, you gave me a little look there, just like in Latin. In Latin. Uh, I uh, will, I'll have you know. I will, I will say <laughs> Latin is one of the few things I think I do understand a little bit from, yeah. that have overlap with the medical field, just from studying medical history. Yeah. If just one shit that we learn, it's fucking weird latin phrases that ancient doctors used to use so anyway ex vivo means out of the living in latin and it refers to tissues that have been removed from an organism and this kind of model has a number of advantages firstly it's a controlled environment than if you're working on an animal that you know can just walk around and do whatever it wants viruses shit (laughs) parasites well, eat whatever they want. Like you can't control what it does because well, it's going to do a lot of I will stuff say on its own. Animal facilities are extraordinarily clean. Whenever like, you oh, go, well, yeah, like I think pigs and stuff. Like they're not. Clean. No, no, they are very clean. Like animals used in research are bred specifically for research. They are they're like special programs because you also need to to um, to know exactly what their genotype is. What breed is this? Science. <laughs> pig (laughs) what breed is this pig science pig (laughs) science pig so anyway when you're using ex vivo tissues it's a more controlled environment than if you're working on an animal and then it also allows you to do experiments that would not be ethical otherwise or that would require a lot of ethical approvals and one example if i often think about is the use of post-mortem human brain sections that you can run experiments on directly or even culture and keep alive for up to 60 days why 60 days? Does it become alive after that? Do they wake up? Um, I think, I mean, they just start dying off. And actually, I think it's 60 days. That's kind of like the... It's pushing it. It's pushing it. I mm. think most labs work with them maybe for like two weeks. And mm. then that's kind of like the cutting off point. The cool thing about postmortem slices is that you still get to work on a human brain. The cells are preserved. The brain architecture is preserved. Meaning the way that the cells are organized um, is is what you would see in a human brain, but you're not working on an actual human, which of course would carry ethical concerns. However, tissue or organ sections can be difficult to obtain, and also death has pretty significant effects on the organ's biophysical properties, and also they are relatively difficult to maintain in culture. So personally, I, I, I've, 
barely, if ever, heard of anybody working with ex vivo models. Mm. I don't really think it's a very popular uh, method. It's like a very niche thing. It seems yeah, it's like. a, it's a like bit niche. When you need something specific, but you can't do it on an animal yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Another way to run experiments, which is also rapidly gaining in popularity, is by performing computer simulations. Mm. This is called in silico, and it's newer than other research models. And truthfully, it's the one I know the least about because I'm absolutely hopeless with programming. Like, I can do a bit of bioinformatic analysis, and I'm so proud of it <laughs> when, I, when I manage to do it. I'm so happy. Um, but I it's barely even understand what that means. Pretty simple stuff. But once we get into AI and like machine learning and neural networks, I'm like, I'm out, like I'm gone. Um, but from what I hear, there are a lot of things you can do with it. Allegedly. <laughs> I've, I've been told it's really useful for a lot of things, in particular in the context of pharmacology. And it makes drug development a lot more efficient because you can use it to shortlist compounds of interest. So... You know, let's say you have like a thousand molecules that might be useful for a particular disease, but you don't know. So you just like define the receptor of interest and you kind of ask AI to match the receptor of interest with like some of the compounds that you have. So you don't have to do it manually, like it does it for you. Mm. So it's a much faster process. Um, so you can use it to do that. You can predict how molecule will act in the body. Like, will it bind to cancer cells or will it bind to cancer cells and also healthy cells and kill off all of them? Mm. Um, how it will be processed and so on. And this type of modeling is developing very quickly. And there are a lot of new and exciting ways to use computer simulations for both basic and applied research, which I will talk about later in my models of the future mm. section. I will say that like AI is one of those fields that like a lot of people on Twitter make fun of AI for good reason because people see like the art generators that steal people's art or like ChatGPT giving people false information <laughs> and that's that is silly and that is true. Well, right? there's good but, models and there's bad models. You exactly. Know what I mean? exa like yeah, the, the, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Exactly because it's like it is it is very interesting to me that like this is like despite everything being kind of shitty and worse it is like especially like two years ago mm -hmm. like. The art generators now, they're pretty damn good. Mm. First, first of all, like they still shouldn't steal the art to do it. Um, oh, but fuck the art. Like, we're not talking about the art. No, no, no. Like, but like, but we're saying, like, they're, like, they're, the, the, the mechanics and science mm. behind it is like growing at a very fast pace. And like, as you say, like unlocking a lot of potential for like scientists. But the last thing I want to say before I give the floor to you is that while in silico research is moving very quickly, it is still not advanced enough for it to entirely replace animal models. And that's why we have to continue using animal models, despite PETA coming and knocking on the door and making us feel like shit. Okay, it's history time. Now. Now. You know I'm always down to talk about the history of weird weird stuff, including animal testing. But I honestly had no idea what I would find like going into this episode for research, because when I picture like animal testing in medical research, I'm, I'm imagining like rats, like maybe monkeys, like in cages in a lab, but I'm imagining like laboratories and laboratories turns out haven't actually been around for that much of human history. You didn't see a lot of cave person laboratories, you know what I mean? <laughs> 
So I kind of expected animal testing to be a somewhat modern phenomenon, but oh, how wrong I was. Or how right I was. Maybe both. Funny enough. First, I want to define some terms. Because when talking about medical uses of animal testing, that's obviously different from animal testing generally for any reason. And this becomes important because the overlap of philosophy and medicine in ancient history is very it's, large. It's a like, circle. It's a circle. <laughs> there is the Venn, yeah, that Venn diagram is a circle. Um, so like testing for medical purposes specifically becomes important to mention because like Aristotle did a lot of stuff. Not all of it was for medical purposes. Um, and also, we've been doing a lot of weird tests on animals. You could ar even argue that domestication generally is a type of weird experimentation that we've done on them. Like, sheep aren't meant to be like that. Cows are not meant to be like that. But we made them that way. Uh, but that's put not them, medical testing, technically. Put them in an enclosure, see what happens. Maybe they become your best friend. <laughs> Maybe they become your best friend. Try to, try to do that with a bear. Not going to have Didn't a lot work. of success. Didn't <laughs> work. People tried. Didn't work. The earliest example we do know of that's kind of medical, maybe, uh, is actually a cow skull from 3000 BCE that has a hole drilled into it, uh, which may have been a test so or for practice trepanation. for trepanation. Maybe. I will say, though, that this, is a, this, this one's a little... Maybe, mm -hmm. maybe not. All we know is that there's a cow skull and someone wanted to make a hole in it. <laughs> it wasn't an accidental hole, like a person made the hole, but we don't know why. Mm -hmm. uh, did not survive. So this, this cow could have been dead or could have died because of the hole. We don't know. Uh, but it's a fun sort of like little intro story. But let's start with what we do know. The ancients and their attitudes to human anatomy, because that is where our story of animal testing begins. The ancient Greeks and Egyptians had pretty well-developed knowledge on the anatomy of the human body, and they generally didn't mind cutting up human bodies yeah. to figure out how we work. Both the Edwin Smith papyrus and the Ebert papyrus, which we've mentioned frequently on this podcast before, include details on human organs in intricate detail. The bodies used for these experiments were mostly those of prisoners, sometimes while they were still alive. Uh, but people didn't have a lot of those bodies and prisoners to study unless you just started grabbing people off the street, or if you had had the good fortune of just having won a war. So studying the anatomy of animals became a way to produce knowledge without having to resort to emptying the royal dungeons every week. This is a type of comparative anatomy, and because a lot of animals, like you mentioned, are built very similarly to humans, you can still learn about like how muscles and tendons and nerves and organs are shaped and formed, even if they are somewhat different to the human body. Cutting up animals, also sometimes while they were still alive, became a more sustainable way for the doctors, maybe not the animals, way to study and educate about anatomy, which eventually became a tradition in its own right which is a tradition that high schoolers around the world are forced to keep alive today every time they cut up a frog. Can I tell you something really disappointing? Sure. I didn't get to cut up a frog in, um, mm. in my biology class. We got to cut up a cockroach. <laughs> oh, no. Well, that's interesting in another, in another way, to be fair. It was so disgusting. I can bet. I didn't get to cut anything up in high school, but they did bring in uh, a bunch of pig organs. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and we got to like play around with them. What do you mean play around? Please Basically just play me. around. We got, we put on like lab coats and like gloves and we got to just like, you know, fuck around. I got to play around with human brains in um, my mm-hmm. undergrad. Oh, play around with human brains. Mm-hmm. To the loved one whose uh, brain has been played with. Listen, it's better than than grandma's brain or grandma's body being sent to serve as uh, weapon test dummies. Yeah. There's a John Oliver video recently about just that specific thing, actually. About people donating their bodies to science and it ends up in like all sorts of places where they're not supposed to be. I want to sort of like loop back to the idea that these dissections of animals were typically done not just for the purposes of like discovering new science even though thinkers of the ancient world did try to do that as well but it was mostly done to educate new doctors and sort of like demonstrate various concepts within the human body and this would happen by typically students like reading about the current knowledge on the human body and then like the head doctor would you know cut up a, an animal oftentimes while it was still alive And the students would then come up and sort of like examine organs and try to, uh, you know, speculate about the purposes of the organs and where they lead and what the, how they work. Why still alive? It's weird, but we will get into it and it's going to get so much worse. There is one very graphic description, which I will give a trigger warning for. Okay. But it's, it's, it's quite horrible. This method of, of anatomical study was frequently used by uh, the ancient Greeks. They liked to do all sorts of weird shit. Aristotle frequently studied the bodies of various animals and made comparison to human anatomy. Unfortunately, a lot of the animals would suffer as they would basically be mutilated to see how the mutilation would change the behavior of the animal. How does a pig walk with two legs? Science. Mm. Like, science back then was... They would do stuff and just see what happens. And often, like, some of some of the descriptions that we'll also get to later, like, they seem almost unnecessarily cruel. Yeah. Um, which is how we sort of get into discussion about ethics, but that comes up a bit later. God, I had <clears throat> a bit of a tangent, but I had a, a lecture in my neurology class in my undergrad with a Russian lady. Um, but she told us about, like, Russian experiments <clears throat> she was very proud of uh, Russian contributions to, to science. Mm-hmm. But she would tell us about how the Russians would study uh, the nervous system in dogs by cutting off nerves, just to, just to see how it affects their ability to walk and to perform like regular functions. Yeah. And yeah. Oh, you were going to talk about that? I am, it's not specifically the Russian part, but like nerves in dogs will come mm-hmm. up uh, a little bit. <clears throat> now as the Russians. Uh, but yeah, like that kind of stuff would happen a lot because that's, one, that's how very early thinkers, uh, but also like in, in the more modern day, like got detailed knowledge about like the spinal cord yep. uh, by fucking around with animals. Turns out if you sever somebody's spinal cord, they're going to have trouble walking hmm. and they're going to have to like... Write that down. Yeah. <laughs> Fascinating. Fascinating science. <laughs> Let's smash a dog's head in and see what he does then. Mm. He dies. Interesting. <laughs> God, this is so awful. Legitimately, some of, the th- some of the things I've read about th- this thing kind of sounds like this. Yeah. Like some of the things that Aristotle would do were kind of like this stuff. It's legitimately kind of horrifying. <clears throat> spooky um, sode? No, is this a spooky sode that we're doing? Secret, secret, secret hidden spooky sode. Mm. Kind of. Uh, another Greek thinker uh, was Erasistratus. 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 
who did a lot of work on anatomy using similar methods. He was actually an early champion for the theory that fluids that you would absorb into the body were swallowed into the stomach and not by swallowing it through the trachea and then to be absorbed through the lungs, which was another theory at the time for how you know fluids would be absorbed. Because I don't know why this was the two theories at the time, but it turns out that if you cut up on a pig uh, in just a perfectly gruesome way, you can watch and, and check. But they would both prefer human subjects when possible. It's just, again, you don't have that many subjects. Moving on to the Romans, they also studied animals and their anatomy. But depending on the time period, the reasons for using animals are starting to change around a little bit, which I think is, is interesting. We're starting to get into sort of like thinking about ethics <laughs> generally. Uh, but not about the animals. <laughs> we don't care about them for another thousand years. Roman physician Galen, uh, or Galen, or however you pronounce that, would experiment on pigs, dogs, and monkeys to gain medical knowledge. By studying these animals, he made comparisons to human anatomy, as well as testing various methods to heal wounds, especially on pigs who he considered to be very similar to humans in terms of wound healing. So that's interesting. He would try various poultices, stitches, and stuff like that. He would also tie up the urethra, or urinary tract of animals, to see the effects of urine retention. <laughs> Who knew that everyone's favorite Roman doctor was a piss boy? <laughs> did he also coin the expression pissistol uh, stored in the balls? He, he did, actually, yeah. Mm. Famously. Famously Galen. Galen. <laughs> pissistol in the balls. <laughs> but, like, it's such an interesting thing, because, like, I thinking from the scientific perspective that he had, it's just like, what happens? If you don't piss, <laughs> what happens if you just I, don't piss? This is my like. This is one of the things about science that I I fucking love that it it it's so much so much of of science starts out by somebody being like, what happens if yeah you do that? And it can be just the dumbest thing in the just world. Just the dumbest thing in the world. But it, but then you think about it like, is it that <laughs> dumb? What does happen if you don't pee? People at the time didn't know, and now they do know. Speaking of nerves and spine tissue that we talked about earlier, he would also use the spinal cords of pigs and experiment on them to understand nerve functioning by exposing the spinal cord and prodding and tugging at various parts of the body. And this actually led to early advancements into reflexes. And he would use animals as subjects because Roman state law forbade autopsies. We weren't allowed to use people no more. And not even like... Corpses? No. How come? I don't know. I tried to find out. I, I don't really... I couldn't find it. Initially, I thought it was like a Christian thing, because the Christians were like, you're not allowed to do that because of God. But th this predates Christianity as a, as a state religion of Rome. I, I spent like I spent like two hours like looking up like, why did Galen not do this? Because like... Or like, why is the law this way and why is it relating to it? And I was like, is it Christians? No. But he talks about Christians and talks about like... It's a weird school. I don't like them. I don't like them. Um, I'm not going to get far, though. They're weird Christians, yeah. Yeah, they're not going to get far. It's never going to last. It's a, it's, it's a fad. <laughs> <laughs> but I couldn't exactly find the correct answer. From the best I can figure out is that they just had like a sanctity of a dead person. But I do also know that not everyone was covered by this law. Yeah. Because if you're not Roman, 
then you're not a person in that sense. Yeah. Like you can you can be a Roman citizen, you can be a Roman like working person basically, where you're not a real citizen and you don't have any rights, but you're still like a Roman. And they still had slaves, right? Yeah, yeah. Slaves still had some rights, but then there were, you could be like even lower. Like you could you could be like a citizen, a plebeian, slave, and then you could just be like a person who wandered into town. Because oh. <laughs> if you're coming in from like germanium, you're nothing. You're not a pleb. You're Did not you a not slave. have any you're... rights? Basically not. You're basically you better an... not walk into that you're city then. Basically an outlaw. I, there are, depends you're on the time period. You're pretty tough on immigration. It depends on the time period. Like outlaws did. Like people from around did have some rights, and you do, you you also don't know who is an outlaw, right? Like if if so, you can't just do crimes to random people who look like strangers. Yeah. Because <laughs> they might have rights, but they might not. This is a bit of a huge tangent, unfortunately. I and I, I do apologize. Galen also used animals as subjects primarily because Roman state law forbade the use of autopsies and so that you can do basically but he specifically stuck to using large animals because Galen believed that smaller animals were too different than humans to be like useful for any scientific endeavor uh, you so he didn't use guinea pigs rats mice like that kind of they're too small so it's pigs monkeys and dogs uh, and his by far favorite animal to do science on were monkeys I was kind of waiting for you to say something weird, like um, armadillos or something, you know. <laughs> I don't know where he would have gotten an armadillo, but I, I was kind of expecting like a weird one. Mm, monkeys is kind of weird, though, isn't it's it? It's not weird. I mean, they're similar to humans. Yeah, but okay. It's the correct answer. Roman physician. you got to, because you're, you've got to yeah, imagine, but... like, he's not just going down to the market and picking <clears throat> up, like, a few dogs that, like, live in the area. Like, he's importing these monkeys yeah, from but, across the empire. Right, but, like, you look at a monkey, like, that's a tiny person. <laughs> I can imagine him seeing, like, a painting. Oh, yeah, that's a tiny person. Like, a painting of a monkey uh, that he obtained through great difficulty from, like, a foreign merchant. And being, like... <laughs> I need those. That's a tiny human. <laughs> Do you know what this will be helpful for? Cutting nerves. <laughs> <laughs> I would, like... 3,000 of those, please. 3,000, please. Give me... But Galen, it's very expensive. 10,000, please. <laughs> Mr. Emperor, give me 10,000 monkeys. <laughs> and he was like, bet. Was, does Galen have a good relationship with the emperor? No clue. No idea. I have to imagine that, like, as with many other thinkers, I don't think they interacted that much. He wasn't, like, a court physician or something? The time he was active... I mean, he was very famous. He may very well have had interactions with the court. Roman historians are screaming in the comments right now of how ignorant I am, because this is probably very well-known information, but did, didn't fit within the purview of this episode. So I didn't research that part specifically. Well, you're primarily focused on uh, post-World War yeah, exactly. gender and yes. sexual history, so yeah, exactly. <laughs> not exactly a Roman, Roman Empire historian. But I like this is... This is kind of late Roman Empire. Like, he knows what Christians are. It's over a hundred years since Jesus allegedly died. Roman emperors at this time are mostly focused on sucking and fucking. Um, and leaving, like, the business of the Roman Empire, like, the real business, to, like, other people. Yeah, but they still need a court physician. Yeah, I mean, pro and probably... You know, sucking and fucking comes with a lot of consequences. <laughs> And they may very well have asked him for help in those, because he was a very famous doctor and physician at the time. So it's very, very likely that he probably has some interactions with the court. But because he liked cutting up animals so much, uh, he is now known as the father of vivisection. 
which is kind of rude to Aristotle, who also did that kind of stuff, and to basically every doctor at the time. He did not invent vivisections. But also, it's kind of a dubious... Do you want the title? N- like, it's a, it is kind of a dubious title, you know what I mean? Mm. Like, do, yeah, do you... Do you want to be called the father of vivisection? I don't know. We'll actually get in a little bit to why he's called that and why it has a dubious reputation. Because the word... I don't even know anything about the, the reputation. Just like by hearing it, it's mm-hmm. like I wouldn't want it for myself. No, no, no. But like there's a reason why you think that. Because oh. the, the, the word vivisection has a really bad connotation, right? It doesn't sound great. You don't want to be vivisected. But there's a reason... <laughs> I definitely for... don't. <laughs> but there's a reason for that. And we'll get into that, which has nothing to do with Galen. But people have used the word vivisection a bit differently. Today, it means the literal definition of like a section of a living thing, cutting up a live thing, while it it is still alive. Otherwise, it's a dissection. But it has also referred to using live animals in experimentation generally, not necessarily cutting them up and like displaying Mm. their organs so it so just like animal research like that's vivisection yes it it has been used that way occasionally not always and today it's not used like that Mm -hmm. but it has been occasionally okay so that is one of the reasons why people were more comfortable calling him the father of vivisection which he did but he did also do non-vivisection vivisection vivisection, (laughs) just to sort of i don't know protect him and interpretation anyway we'll get into why it has a bad connotation a bit later Moving on, jumping a few centuries ahead. In the 12th century, the Arab physician Abu Marwan ibn al-Malik in Zur, he would expand on some of the thoughts of previous thinkers, and he would use animals in regular experimentations for surgical procedures, specifically before applying those procedures to humans. And this became a bit of a significant development, because it's not just applying the knowledge learned for a potential human application long-term, like we know how organs work, uh, but it's because the initial goal of the experiment on the animal is for a specific surgery and to improve the results before moving on to human testing, uh, which is kind of kind of how it, closer to how it works today. Uh, Ibn Zur is therefore known in medical science as the first person to perform an experimental tracheotomy on a goat. And he was so dedicated to surgery as its own sort of field of science that he was an early adopter of describing conditions in terms of this is when you call the doctor and this is when the doctor needs to get the fuck out and you call him the surgeon, mm. uh, which was a quite a like radical thinking at the time. It is also unfortunate that he is like very well known for being the first person to do an experimental tracheotomy on a goat, which is such a specific thing, because he was like one of the most renowned physicians in the world at the time. He's the goat man. You give one goat a new trachea. He's the throat goat. He, he throats one goat, and now <laughs> he's the throat goat. You know what I mean? Before we reach more recent times and how they used animals in testing, I would like to quickly mention the way we have discussed the ethics of using animals for the purposes of testing and how it has been justified by the schools of medical thinking that we have just mentioned, like the Greeks, the Romans, the the Moors in Spain. Experimentation on animals was justified first by the Greeks with the justification that animals were a lesser form of life and you can do whatever you want to them because of that reason. And later by Christian Europeans, whose stance on animals was that they came from a different heritage than that of humans. And 
depending on your theological outlook, either didn't have souls or had souls, but they were bad souls because <laughs> they have sin and they're dirty. Wait, animals have sin? In, in some theological circles I've never in heard like of the this. 1500s or 1400s. What's their rather. sin? Being cute? I don't know. You'd have to ask like a monk. <laughs> but the, the main, the overarching point is most people didn't think they had souls. Yeah. Uh, in like Christian theology, they were like, well, they're beasts. Uh, there has been an idea that humans are inherently above animals and therefore it's okay to use them for experiments or basically for whatever you want. Anything, yeah. Uh, they are tools that God has placed on the earth for us to use mm. to better our own lives. And that is basically the view we have had of animals up until very recently. And this is partially why today's history segment is a bit more Eurocentric than normal, even if classic academic bias is always part of research, unfortunately, because many other areas of the world had different attitudes towards animals. Islamic teaching, for example, specifies that you do have to be kind to animals. You can't unnecessarily harm an animal. And if you do have to harm an animal, it has to be like for a specific purpose and it has to be for the betterment of a, of a human. And it has to be done to reduce as much pain and suffering as possible. And this is one of the reasons why Ibn Zur preferred to do his experiments on either dead animals or when he did his experimental tracheotomy, for example, try to limit the suffering as much as possible. Which also makes sense when you want to apply the results to a human, because I would guess you, want, you don't want them to suffer either. In other areas of the world, like India, for example, which was also like a hotspot for medical teaching and especially like surgical techniques at the time, there's a much more of an idea that animals do have inherent value and that they are like spiritual creatures, depending on your type of religion, for example, then it's not okay to harm them because you're kind of fucking up the balance of the world. In Chinese medicine, they did use animals, but they didn't really use animal testing in that sense. They didn't really have this same philosophy of empirical observation that uh, Islamic scholars uh, Indian scholars and like ancient scholars and then like Western scholars uh, kind of adopted had because they would much prefer to use animals in more direct medicine, which is how you end up with using insects as like pastes to eat, for example. That's not really animal testing in a sense. It's more like using animals as medicine. Uh, listen to our episode of Bugs. Bugs is drugs. B Bugs is drugs. But this attitude, at least in Western medical science, was the norm for a very, very long time. That humans are above animals and therefore you can do whatever you want to them. But this changes around the Age of Enlightenment, when many scholars and thinkers reject religious arguments and instead want to create a rational, empirical view of the world instead. And this brings with it even more animal testing, but very different rationalizations for why you do it, which I think is also quite interesting. One thinker, who is often credited with being one of the people who got that whole Age of Enlightenment going, was French philosopher René Descartes, who would frequently cut animals open in order to study and educate his audience about anatomy. And this would, like I mentioned in other cases, also be done in front of an audience so that you could educate other people. But what was different during the Age of Enlightenment, or like slightly before it, was that you could invite like court nobles because this, the pursuit of science and like the scientific knowledge 
was seen as like a new type of virtue mm. um, and it's sort of almost a responsibility to learn about how the world works and then that also becomes like that's like a noble goal but then it also becomes a little bit of a freak show when it's like yeah. bring out the court i'm cutting <laughs> up a pig <laughs> so these experiments would be justified not from the perspective of providing a specific good for people or by animals being inherently less worthy than humans but because it would advance the cause of science and knowledge for the sake of knowledge and science you did not necessarily have to do a like a reason or like like a new experiment for a specific type of like surgery you like if it produces new knowledge mm. then it is good uh, objectively uh, was the thinking of the time doesn't really matter much else uh, in that regard but also they would be justified by René Descartes specifically not really viewing animals as having the ability to feel pain or the ability to have thoughts animals would be seen much more in a mechanical sense that they are basically just machines and to be fair to him he did also consider humans to also be basically just biological machines in that sense although humans of course have a soul mm. but the thing about René Descartes is he famously thinks that the soul and the body are two separate things and the body is entirely mechanical mm. but because he considered animals to be like non-feeling non-thinking creatures you could not be cruel to them there like that was not a, that didn't make sense like there is no like you, you can't be cruel to a computer so. yeah there's no moral implication implication here whatsoever uh, and he would do these vivisections all over Europe in the 1600s uh, until Sweden's allegedly lesbian queen, Christina, invited him to her court. And if you know anything about Sweden, you know it's cold as fuck up here. Um, oh, I remember reading about this. He hated it at court. He oh, did he hated not, it up here. He did not want to go. He hated it in Sweden. He yeah. fucking hated this cold-ass garbage country. But he had to go, because like, well, if the queen calls you up, you gotta go. Well, you don't gotta go. You kind of gotta go. You don't really gotta go. It's a, it's a queen of Sweden. But, He's in France. You can just but, go like, no. But it looks so good on the CV, though. It does. It's a good resume. It's true. It's a good work experience. It's a good reference. <laughs> well, his experiments did, unfortunately, come to a tragic end because he got sick and fucking died here. What um, did he die of? I don't remember. I think it's actually like a little unclear exactly what he died of, if I, if I don't misremember. Because it's I, may, I think it's also like a, an ongoing myth that he died of getting a cold because of the cold weather. That's what I think I heard. Um, but that might have been a myth. Pneumonia. Pneumonia. There you go. Well, uh, this story isn't super relevant, but I love pointing out that we killed René Descartes. <laughs> One of the most foundational thinkers of, of like Western philosophy. Came up to Sweden, caught we a cold. We killed him. <laughs> caught a cold, died. Died. Um, he's buried in France now, which I think is like, okay, he could have stayed here. <laughs> it's not good enough. We, his first tomb is actually right by Hertogut. In the, in the church right there. So right right here in Stockholm. We've, walk, we've walked past this tomb many times, actually. Really? Uh, he's right by the place where I get my uh, hair removal <laughs> clinic. Your um, dialysis. It's not dialysis. <laughs> I like to call it dialysis, it's just for fun. This view of animal testing became typical with enlightenment attitude towards animal use in medical science. Even by those who did consider animals to have souls and worth and ability to feel pain. Again, because like the idea of producing science is above everything else. Other philosophers, for example, like Spinoza, argued that animals can feel, but we as humans should still use animals however we want, for whatever purposes we need. 
The advancement of medical science was seen as superseding basically any ethical consideration, and because of the expansion of universities and schools, this also meant that animal testing became a standardized thing that happened everywhere that people could have an opinion about rather than like an educated person working at the court. It's like, no, the local university, they split up animals. Everyone splits up an animal every now and then. The people opposed to animal use would rarely be seen as rational actors, however, and animal welfare was seen as a very fringe position, even though this discussion started to exist now. And a reason for that is, as I said, like the, these animal tests are becoming more widespread, they're becoming publicly known, and like again, people can have an opinion about them, but also because the way that they would do a lot of these experiments would be quite gruesome. And this is where I do need to mention a little bit of a trigger warning for dogs and like animal like animal abuse tor torture <laughs> like basically yeah. wanton abuse yeah. um because these debates would focus partly on the gruesome nature of the experiments themselves which could include vivisecting a dog's facial nerves while its paws were nailed into a wooden board uh, each individual paw like spread out and by holding up a dog's puppies like in front of a vivisected dog's um in front of its vivisected mother, and sort of like kind of torturing the puppy to see how the vivisected mother would respond to that stimuli so that they could test whether or not the maternal instinct can supersede the individual suffering of the mother. It's really like saw-like conditions like that this is describing. I, like, I have questions, but also, like, I don't really want to know the answer. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, for sure. Like, like my again, scientific yeah. curiosity is, like, and what happened? You know? <laughs> but I also... Do you want the result? Like, I, I'm kind of curious. Like, does the it... maternal instinct was stronger. Really? Yeah. Like, like, the dog will be upset at you fucking with the puppy more than it will be uh, screaming in agony. Which it does. Uh, and a lot of the examples uh, also mention them, like, vivisecting uh, an animal, keeping it alive for as long as possible. Like, they, they do it in a very specific way so that they don't die, and then leaving them overnight uh, so that two classes can use it at the same time to save on animal use. So you get the evening class and the morning class, use the same animal, and just leave it there overnight. It's really quite horrific. And you can see sort of why a lot of people are like, the fuck are you like, doing at those universities? Like, please stop doing that. Like, yeah, it's one thing if like a doctor like hella way has done it like once or twice yeah. to figure out how a spine works, but you're doing this like daily, and you can see sort of how the debate started to form. But then on the other hand, scholars would point out the rapid advancement of medical science, the rediscovery of the details around blood circulation in the 18th century, for example, as evidence of a methodology that is working quite well, coupled with the fact that there still hadn't been a settled opinion on whether or not animals had worth or not. A debate that kind of is still ongoing today. Like, mm -hmm. what is the relative worth of an animal compared to a human being and, like, the cause of science? And this would continue basically uninterrupted from the Age of Enlightenment up until the Industrial Revolution. Because there's a few things that happen here. The discovery of anesthetics 
in the 1800s would be a bit of a game changer, because this would allow scientists to perform experiments with objectively less suffering, which is a win for everyone. Everyone gets to basically have what they want, scientists get to do animal experiments easier, because the dog is going to fight less, and people who care about animal welfare are going to see that the animal is going to suffer objectively less. So it's a win for everyone that this happens. God, you no. saying that the dog is going to fight less, like, that hits. That That is... Because they do. They did. Hmm. Yeah, maybe I should have taken you up on that trigger warning. <laughs> Left the room while you're talking about the dogs. It's uh, it's very unfortunate, to be fair. Yeah. And this had the like the the anesthetics then also has like two outcomes in the in that sense because on one end each individual test would become less suffering, but this also meant that many scientists, many of whom themselves didn't want to work with animals, yeah. right, could do animal tests easier. Mm. It was an easier way for everyone to do it, and this made it so that animal testing became even more widespread and became much more standardized. So even though each individual animal is suffering less. They're killing more animals than ever at this point. Mm. But there's also another outcome of this, and that is that the concerns of animal rights activists at the time, they sort of get their opinion validated. That's like, oh, so you do care. Because mm. if you didn't care, you wouldn't do it. And kind of like playing at the idea that's like, well, if everyone were fine with it, and if everyone really thought that animals had no worth, then why would you even use this in the first place? But... Vivisections would keep happening, because many scientists, particularly in France for some reason, believed that anesthetics would interfere with the results, and pointed out that there are many experiments that you cannot perform if the animal is not awake. So vivisections are still ongoing here, like this is not removing vivisections, this is just making another type of animal testing possible. There is another thing that's happening as well at this time, in the 19th century, and that is the Industrial Revolution particularly all over Europe, but especially in Britain. This caused urbanization. This is going to be important, I promise. It has to do with animals. With scores of rural farmers and laborers who had to move into cities in search of work so that they can work in factories because all of their previous jobs had been automated. Once you invent the tractor, that's like 200 people that don't even have a job anymore. And they all have to go into the cities. They all have to be crammed into the factories. And their standard of living actually like collapsed and it was really, really bad for every working class person in, at that time. But it did cause the emergence of a middle class. People who owned the factories. People who were rich and wealthy, but who weren't part of the aristocracy. People who could have a lot of political power, but not all political power. And especially this group would grow. This wasn't just like a small thing that like a few people in the town would be. This would be like a complete social class, along with people who could be like lawyers and doctors and dentists and things like that. Like people who would still have like a, a modicum of wealth, not be working class, but not be at the top. This massive social change caused many new social occupations and occurrences to happen, like parks. They exist now. And sports. <laughs> cool new invention, sports. But there were sports before. What wasn't football invented by like the ancient Romans? <laughs> so there has is that there has is that like completely out of pocket? No, no, no. It's very smart. I don't think it was invented by the ancient Romans. I think <clears> by <throat> some. I don't know exactly. I'm not exactly sure where. I think it was Mongolians, but I'm not entirely Mongolians. sure. I'm not. I could be wrong. 
but it's, it's a good question because yes, sports had existed and obviously parks have, have existed too, but they have existed. Parks have existed for nobility. For, yeah, like for if, rich people. If you're an aristocrat, not even rich people, if you're an aristocrat, like if you're, if you have noble blood, yeah, you could own like some land that's like nice nature and you could walk around in it. Sports was most, I think, for the military. Like mm. you have 400,000 angry dudes in their 20s. What are they going to do? <laughs> they can't suck and fuck each other all the time, even though they did do that. But you got to give them a ball and let them like... Like run around with it. Yeah, exactly. Like, and, the, and that's what a lot of sports basically was up until the Industrial Revolution. But with the middle class, suddenly you have like a bunch of rich people in cities. They all want to go and have nature. They all want to go and have a little sports for fun. Mm-hmm. Like play like they're in the military, but not really. And that's like when, entertainment. It, kind of, yeah. Like Because they have leisure time, which is a brand new social thing. People did not really have leisure time in that sense. But now rich people are like, oh, I have a day off. What do I do? <laughs> so you had to build parks. You had to do these kinds of things because people wanted them. That, this is also where you get like more theaters be expanded. You're starting to get like the concept of a nightlife. Mm. Did not exist before. And this is a really important thing, leisure. Because a lot of social movements, such as the suffrage movement, the temperance movement, women's suffrage movement, and the public school movement, owe a lot of their active members to these middle class people who were wealthy enough to support them being activists, but who weren't in charge and still had things they wanted to change. In the previous social condition, if we're going to go into Marxist economic (laughs) thinking, uh, if you have like the aristocracy and the peasant class, the peasants have no power, can't change anything. The aristocrats don't want to change anything. But now you have these little middle people who want to change something and they have some power. And that's where you get these movements. But what is the one thing middle class people love more than anything else in the world? Having pets, particularly dogs and cats. Everyone likes a puppy. And the 19th century becomes the century of the dog show. And dog breeders pushing the bounds of genetics to create the most fucked up dog that they can. And many rich people... Real cutting-edge research real being cutting, done in the 19th century. They were, they were, though. And many rich people, many of whom were, you know, contributors and donors to universities, didn't like the idea of their precious dogs being caught up for research. They felt like their beloved pets had values and souls and personalities and this obviously impacts the way that they're going to think about the way you do science. This leads to the creation of animal liberation movements, specifically the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, which was founded in 1824 in the UK and which is now one of the largest animal liberation movements in the world. It is still around and has subsidiaries in basically every single country in the world. (laughs) And this is actually where the word vivisection becomes popularized, because it was mostly used as a pejorative by animal rights activists who opposed the practice of animal testing in general on moral grounds, because it sounded a lot more brutal and unethical than animal experiments. If you really were to specify this, like, hey, they're cutting up living dogs, obviously you're going to be like, oh... That's bad. We shouldn't do that. (laughs) So that's actually why the word vivisection today has a pretty negative connotation. 
While previously, people would occasionally use it both to cutting up live animals, but also just like animal studies. This worked great, actually. It was very effective because many animals, dogs in particular, started being viewed much more like sweet little angels and less like a tool for humans to exploit. These movements became major political players and were instrumental in forcing the discussion of animal ethics into law, which began to happen in 1876 in the UK with the Cruelty to Animals Act of 1876. And this required anesthetics to be used in animal testing, and the suffering of the animal had to be kept to a minimum, and the experiments had to be planned with the specific cause of saving or prolonging life. You can't just do it to show off to the court or to people. You have to do it for a reason. And this is the first sort of actual law in a major country. And this set the most basic standards for animal ethics, with many other nations or states within nations passing similar laws around the 19th and early 20th century. But this is the baseline. It's the most basic. Like, have a reason for cutting up animals. Have a reason. If you're going to cut up a dog, you need to you need, you need to, tell to give us why. a reason, yeah. And preferably use anesthetics. <laughs> preferably use less torturous methods on the dog. Yeah. But from here on out, it actually becomes a bit more complicated and it goes a bit back and forth. Previously, we have sort of like everyone hates animals and they're going to torture them to death. And now we're getting into sort of like we're taking care of animals. We should we should be nice to them. These laws do provide a basic standard. But they also prompt universities and companies to apply their own ethical guidelines on when animal testing is warranted. From this point on, you're not just cutting up animals, you're giving things to animals to see how they would react in a much more widespread way than before. And these basic guidelines don't really have a lot of like specificity to those types of experiments. Especially also because like, if you really want to go nuts with an experiment, odds are you're going to come up with something new. And that's not going to be covered by the law. So it did encourage every institution to make their own rule. And that is good. Those new restrictions that universities and companies would put on themselves would oftentimes be quite tight because it would be good PR to be like, we take care of animals and we do no animal testing. But on the other hand, a few medical disasters happen. In 1937, the elixir disaster happened. We've actually mentioned this in the previous episode, but I'll just keep it very short what it is. An American company made an elixir using diethylene glycol as a solvent and did not test that on animals or basically anyone. And if you don't know in the audience, diethylene glycol kills you. You're not supposed to have that. That is poisonous. You will die. And after over 100 people died, the public outcry that followed prompted a law to be passed in the US in 1938 that required drugs to be tested on animals before they could be sold to the public. So you're in, here we're starting to see like the, the pull and push mm. a little bit. Like, yes, we care for animals. But we also care for people. But yeah, like 100, over 100 people have died. Yeah. Maybe we could have avoided that by testing it on an animal. Although I will say this company specifically, and animal rights activists will often reply to this uh, with this story. The chemist who made the elixir just didn't know that it was poisonous to humans, and which he should have. But it's one of those like extra steps that like probably would have prevented it anyway. So this law now requires it, but you also have to be kind to it. And this is going to keep happening over and over again. Uh, it becomes even more complicated because in the 50s, thalidomide came along. And we've talked about that one as well. And I'm not going to... I think we more people are familiar with thalidomide. 
that was tested on animals, such as mice, rabbits, and rats. So this prompts people on both sides of their argument to argue for their side, because animal rights activists will say that, well, animal testing apparently doesn't even work. Like, you've tested on animals, you didn't catch it, so what's the point? But then people who are more in favor of animal testing, as like the least bad option, will say that, well, they should have done more animal testing because the problem there was they didn't test fetuses, which was a thing that many companies just didn't want to do. Also from a cruelty standpoint, turns out that that was the thing you needed to do. And from here on out, it becomes a back and forth in every country for various different reasons, which makes it a nightmare to do research because various countries will have very different responses to the same disaster and will have very different opinions for how to move forward. And that's one of the reasons why there is very little standards across the world for how animal ethics is supposed to be. And it's also one of the reasons why a lot of governments kind of just given up <laughs> and just handed this question off to ethical boards and more having it as a requirement that those should exist. But I want to point out here that like for most of medical history, people barely even cared about animals. Up until the 1800s, these basic standards didn't exist. And it took up until after the Second World War and into the 80s and 90s even for more modern rules and regulations to be put into place. But I do think that this is a good reminder that animal testing isn't just for like the benefit of science generally, science for the sake of science, but it is also a safety precaution. And it's something that helps you, dear listener, not be poisoned yep. when you get a new medication. Yeah, this is actually something that I was... I wrote in my notes and then I changed my mind about it and I took it out. But it, I think when people think about animal testing, often it's a very like obscure... Like there's this detachment mm -hmm. that people have from science. But like we, we do this for you. <laughs> we do this for, for... I mean, you know, everybody yeah. has taken medication. If, we, if you want the medication to be safe and if you want that medication to exist at all, we like, need to do yeah. animal testing. It's not like something that we do for the hell of it. Um, and I think that's very important to remember. And I think that that goes, kind of goes back to what you were saying before too, that like we, no one really wants to do animal testing. Yeah. It's, it's a sort of like less evil, the least bad option. Mm. Because then the other alternative is that we don't do any testing. That we don't develop pharmaceuticals, that we don't try to like improve yeah. healthcare. And then like, the, and that seems very defeatist or we... uh, for a lot of like health issues that still plague humans today or we do like human experimentation <laughs> yeah. how would that work <laughs> yeah which is also not great yeah i did see while i was doing some research for this i did see a PETA article that was like just do animal experiments on like convicted prisoners and mm. i'm like oh what a great idea what a good idea i wonder who else had this idea yeah. in the 1940s like, what are you talking like, what's about? wrong with you <laughs> everybody hates PETA. <laughs> Everyone hates PETA. That's one of the re that's one of the main points I love about researching this too. Everyone, mm. including most animal rights activists, mm. hate PETA. The worst. All right. So you've talked a lot about ethics in your history segment, which is great because I actually want to complete that section with modern guidelines on animal research. So in Europe. Animal use and research is regulated under a common law frame, which emphasizes species-specific education and the implementation of the free R's in every aspect of care and use of laboratory animals. 
And the three R's don't only stand for reuse, reduce, recycle. But <laughs> Recy they recycle that dog. <laughs> but they also stand for replace, reduce, and refine. So what does this mean? Let's start with replace. Researchers have the responsibility to always try to use alternative methods when designing a study, whether that means cells, ex vivo material, computer simulations, or something else entirely. Animals are supposed to be the very last option that you go to. Additionally, animals are not one size fits all. There's a hierarchy of complexity and researchers have to choose the simplest animal possible. You never start with dogs or pigs or even mice. Some medical studies are possible to do in fruit flies, the famous C. elegans or zebrafish. I love zebrafish. <laughs> They're really cool. I think it's so funny how a fish, because mm -hmm. like a mammal, sure, fish. Turns out you can do a lot of studies in zebrafish. Reduce is pretty self-explanatory. You are expected to use the smallest number of animals you can while still maintaining the integrity of the study, so the significance of your results. And lastly, refine means the scientists have to minimize animal suffering during the experiment, but also generally during the animal's life. Mm. And that means that the animals have to be fed, watered, kept at an appropriate temperature, Fear, stress, and injury uh, has to be avoided, and that the animals are allowed to behave as normally and naturally as possible. Funnily enough, goes eerily close to uh, Ibn Zur's guidelines, uh, the, the Arab doctor oh, yeah. in Spain. Actually, when His... you were doing that section, I was like, this is kind of what we have today. <laughs> no, it goes eerily close to what he wrote, because like, he, he, he took inspiration from what the Quran says. And the Quran also says that like, if you're, if you're going to cause harm to an animal, you have to do it as quick as painless as possible. You can't like stress it out while it's alive. You have to mm. take care of it while it's alive. You have to make sure it's fed. Um, there's, a, there's a line in the Quran, which I think is like very beautiful, which is, if you have to kill an animal, don't kill it twice by, sh by sharpening the blade when it can see it. Yeah, I, that's, that sounds very familiar. I feel like maybe I've heard it before. But despite these ethical guidelines, I do believe it is very unfortunate we have to use animals for research because they still suffer. Yeah. No matter how well you treat them during their life, if you are modeling disease, that means you have to induce disease in the animal. If you are developing a pharmaceutical, there is a chance there might be toxicity or side effects, which affect the animal. Mm. <laughs> the animal suffers again. And even if everything goes well, eventually you have to euthanize the animal in order to minimize prolonged suffering induced by the experiment, even if they just acted as controls, which is the part that I hate the most. <laughs> that at the end of the experiment, even if the animal did not get the pharmaceutical, they did not undergo the treatment, they still have to be euthanized. Hmm. I, I, I do think, I, I mean, obviously all of this is like quite horrific and hmm. like a sad state of affairs, but I will point out one type of animal study that I think is objectively good that mm -hmm. I think everyone can agree on is like universally good. And that is the time that scientists gave um, the MDMA, to, oh, MDMA. Uh, to octopuses. Yeah. And they snuggled. Yeah. And then they were well, just like... I that, hope they didn't euthanize them after. They didn't. No, that's good. <laughs> the, uh, like medical scientists have, like, I feel like a very brutal job in that sense. Mm -hmm. Marine biologists, on the other hand, like psych psychi psychiatrists, mm -hmm. they get to be like... Let's try to make our subject happy. Oh, they did. Wonderful. Write that down. Whereas, like, if you, if you study disease, like, they, they, you'd never try to make... Yeah, like, you're not trying to make a super, mo a super mouse, you know what I mean? 
So with that being said, I am very excited about a future where we don't have to use animals in research at all. And I am extra happy to talk about one alternative model that is gaining traction, and that is organoids. And if you've been following us for a while, you know I'm very interested in organoids, and I believe they have a lot of potential, even though they are currently not quite a mature technology yet. But before I get ahead of myself with the nitty gritty, I need to kind of like pace myself because not everybody is as into organoids as I am, but they are 3D structures that retain characteristics of real organs. So it's like a tiny, undeveloped organ. And I do want to emphasize here that while it's very clickbaity to call it a miniature organ... I'm getting upset at like some CNN articles. An organoid is still a very mature version of an organ. So if you're talking about a brain organoid, it's not like a tiny miniature sized brain. adult brain. It would rather resemble a very early fetal brain. Mm. And that's important also because there's like certain technic- certain ethical concerns about like consciousness and sentience and all of that, you know, especially when you're talking about brains. So it's also important to emphasize that they're not fully grown, fully mature adult brains. I do think it's so interesting that science has progressed so far that someone actually has to do like a proper study and think about this really hard about whether or not the cells you grow are developing are thinking. Mm-hmm. But like cuz if they are you've made an animal. Mm-hmm. And like cuz you could. But if they're not, so it's all great baby. It's really interesting. I don't I don't want to get into it too much because that's a whole another conversation, but there are ethical concerns arising about mm. this. As there should be. Like everyone should always have like an ethical mindset. But it is fucked up. That we could be creating sentience mm-hmm. from cells. Anyway, going back to the like technical details about organoids. So the first thing that you need to know about them is that they are derived from stem cells. The stem cells can be obtained from embryos, which gives really nice organoids, but is a pain in the ass. Or <laughs> <laughs> they are. I mean, that's Piece of shit. it's so hard to get them. And it's just, you know, people hate you and... It, it's yeah. You get fundamentalists coming yeah, to your house. It's very annoying. But you can also get stem cells from adults. So all adults have stem cell reservoirs, for example, in the bone marrow. But getting to those um, requires a very invasive procedure. So it's also kind of a pain in the ass. <laughs> Basically. So instead we do another thing, which is where we take regular somatic cells and we transform them into stem cells. Like uh, we take skin cells, usually like a little skin biopsy, like a like a punch, <laughs> and then make them into induced pluripotent stem cells. And this is the coolest process in the world because it's like turning back time. Like stem cells are like babies. You know, when you're a baby, like you can do anything. Like mm. the future, you're like your blank slate. You can become anyone you mm. want, and then you become like. A YouTuber. <laughs> and then that's what you're going to be. And then that's what you're going to be. And you can't be... A, a baby again. You can't be a baby again. And you can't be another type of cell. You, I can't become president of the United States. Yeah. That's not what I meant. Right. But... But I could become a baby again in this... In this scenario. See, you're getting it. Um, so in the context of organoids, this is really cool. Because you can get cells from any person with any disorder... And turn them into stem cells. And the stem cells will, of course, maintain the person's genotype, the person's genetic material, and will carry the mutations that maybe are relevant for the disorder. So it's very convenient for disease modeling. Mm. 
because from these stem cells you can build an organoid. So you can build an organoid that is diseased. So imagine this, you've got a bunch of stem cells in a flask, floating in very expensive nutrient soup. Mm, good soup. <laughs> So expensive. How much trouble would I be in if I like if I just like took up a glass and just I've wondered about it. Because like how much how much trouble? Like with first of all, would they know it was me? <laughs> second second of all, how how how, much, all, how would... much trouble am I in just from a physical standpoint? I don't like I'm trying to think like what how bad would it be if you were to drink like DMEM? Um DMT? I know that one. <laughs> well, first of all, I think it would taste really bad because it has like salts and things like that. It has fetal bovine serum. <laughs> so you are also drinking cow blood extract. So so, wow. so far you got salty <laughs> cow blood extract. I've had a meat shake. What? Meat beef, shake? Beef, beef shake. And then there's a lot of hormones that are added to that. Well, I get that in a McDonald's burger think... too. I feel like maybe it wouldn't be that bad. I think it would be really disgusting. And it would be very... Like, that would be the most expensive drink you've ever drank in your life. So you put them in the nutrient soup. And they can become anything you want them to be with just a little bit of science magic. You can force them to take a spheroidal shape. They become little balls of cells. And they start differentiating into different cell types. Not only this... But the stem cells start organizing themselves, meaning that they independently take on the morphology of the organ that you're interested in. You do not look impressed. I cannot explain to you how impressive this is. No, I, I do think it's very impressive. I have heard a thing, and I don't know if it's true or something you told me or something I've dreamed. So, hold on. Is, is it <laughs> whether it's true or if, if it's something I told you, are those two mutually exclusive? <laughs> no, no, no. But like, like if it's true, like you have told me it, or if it's something I have dreamed. Okay. Um, is it true that like they can't, because like this is really cool, that they can organize themselves in like very complex They know where to go. Like how cool is that? But I've heard that sometimes they can organize themselves a little, a little incorrectly and just like do whatever they want and grow like an eye. Is that no. a thing I've heard? No, that doesn't happen. Okay. Like, you're not going to try to grow, like, a brain organoid and then get an eye. That's not going to happen. <laughs> Some Like, the honestly, the worst thing that can happen is you get, like, a really bad organoid that falls apart. An eye, you're not going to get. Odds are that I have we probably seen an it. article and misunderstood it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, speaking of brain organoids, this is what I worked with. So, this is what I have the most experience with. So after about one week of culturing, they start forming neural buds, which resemble brain ridges. At later stages, analysis of cell populations show layers of brain cells, like different types of neurons, um, astrocytes, oligodendrocytes, forming independent layers that resemble the layers of a real organ. Mm. I only got to culture mine for a bit over a month. But some labs that culture them for longer have also noticed electrical activity, indicating oh. ne- indicating neuronal maturation and neural network formation. In any case, the similarities between the in vivo organ and organoids mean that we can model disease, like I said earlier, but also test drugs, because ideally the organoids will respond to drugs just as the in vivo organ would. Yeah. And the difference is that, like, it's... Not alive. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, well it, it is, it is, alive. is, it is it alive. alive. It is alive, but it's not suffering. Yeah, exactly. Well, <laughs> well we don't know. <laughs> anyway, Science at this point... doesn't know if the brains we've created are suffering. No, they're not. Anyway, um, no matter how much I love them and I want them to be perfect, organoid technology still has a bit to grow and mature. For one, we still don't fully understand all the processes behind differentiation. So differentiation is when a cell, a stem cell becomes like a set cell. Mm -hmm. And we are still developing the technology needed to implement some of the things that we do know. Specifically for the scientists out there, I'm talking about temporal and spatial dependent morphogen gradients. I know some of those words. Additionally, organoids are pretty large. They can grow to be the size of your fingernail. Oh. They, That's so much bigger than I thought. It, mm, it, mm, it is huge. The ones that I grew were the size of a fingernail. Can you imagine how big the ones are? Um, the ones that are grown for like a, a year, and like it is a weird ass feeling to go to the lab on a Saturday and look in your little flask and see like a bumpy, a bumpy fingernail sized organoid and be like, "That's a little that I made that." <laughs> It's just me and you, baby. I'm your it's, god. In the slap on a Saturday. It's weird. It's very weird. I love it. But they, they grow really big. And this poses issues with nutrient and oxygen perfusion to the core. And toxin removal. Because in the body, this is achieved by vascularization. Uh, blood vessels, you know, bring in nutrients. Oxygen take away toxins. But this is absent in organoids. So this is a challenge that needs to be overcome. Lastly, organoids typically end up pretty heterogeneous in size and morphology, likely because we still don't understand and cannot control all the processes underlying organogenesis, so how an organ is formed. So we give them the nutrient soup and we kind of like hope for the best, but then in the end, like the organoid does what the organoid wants and we end up with like, you know, them being different in sizes and, yeah. and different in size and having different shapes. There was a part of me that was going to ask it, so too was going to suggest something really stupid. What? And that was just like, well, couldn't you do like a version of an organoid for vascularization? And then I was like, okay, but then that would require other things for that to work. And then if you keep doing that, that's pregnancy. You've made a person. <laughs> that's there... a full person that you've made for everything to work as a complete kit. There I can't are... imagine, unless yeah. you have like an artificial, yeah. you, you, like you need an artificial like thing to be as an go-between so you don't make a person because <laughs> I, I assume you don't want to make a person like then that's not the goal here i don't i don't think you're gonna run too much into the risk of accidentally making a person no but <laughs> this I'm is saying... really difficult to do <laughs> no i know but i'm just i'm just like if you if that was the goal to sort mm -hmm. of like let's make a vascularization organoid and then let's make a hard organoid and let's make like uh, all these different like types of organoids you're making a person after a while, you know, like you're making or a person. There is such a thing called a body on a chip. <laughs> so, um, Oppa. <laughs> so again, this is a bit beyond the scope, but it's really interesting. But like some labs are trying to build systems where they combine organoids representing different systems. There we go. That's because the like what I said about, you know, cells communicating, there's communication happening across the body. And if you want to have a complete system, even if you're implementing like a pharmaceutical in the brain, but like what if the brain communicates with the lung or the heart? Yeah. Like you want a complete picture of yeah. what happens. But yeah, that's extraordinarily difficult to do. Yeah, I, I bet. As a person who is not involved in science, science does sometimes seem like magic. 
Mm-hmm. Um, for me, I'm involved in science, and it's it, it is magic. There's a there's a science science fiction quote that like uh, any sufficiently advanced enough technology to a person who doesn't understand it will appear as as if it is magic. Um, but it's so fun magic. And, and usually that's like a thing you use in science fiction. It works when you when you tell me about like new things that happen. It's like you're growing brain. <laughs> you're like a necromancer in D and D. Just like rise. <laughs> Rise, my young, and it's like teeny tiny, like fingernail sized. <laughs> I want you drained. Mother, please. Um, I don't have neuronal activity. <laughs> Mother, <laughs> give me glucose. Mother, that's galactose. Mother, no. I apologize. Um, like, we're, I'm it's so sorry. 11 p.m. Yeah. It's 2 a.m. Damn. Lastly, organoids typically end up pretty heterogeneous in size and morphology, likely because we still don't understand and cannot control all of the processes underlying organogenesis, so organ development. Mm. And this is problematic if you want to reduce variables in an experiment, and therefore also needs to be improved. Lastly, this is a very expensive and labor-intensive model to develop, and it is therefore quite challenging to increase throughput. I can see that. You worked hardest bug to make the ones you have. So testing a large number of pharmaceuticals while maintaining statistical significance can be very challenging. There's so much more to be said about organoids, but I do want to shortly cover one other thing before we wrap up this episode, and that is AI. Simulations driven by artificial intelligence hold the potential to predict new pharmacological data based on computational chemistry and molecular modeling data, which refers to simulated chemical and physical properties of drugs, as well as data from old animal studies. So AI could replace animal models. This method can be used to simultaneously predict new molecules with desired biological effects, as well as predict their effects in an organism. So it's like having a virtual rat that cannot suffer. Mm. Wouldn't that be amazing? We're, this this is this is one of those things I feel like in a science fiction movie where it's like we have solved suffering. The AI can feel suffering now. <laughs> Turns out that suffering Let's is an integral open... part of like medicine, and we need we, the AI needs to suffer a little bit, otherwise the models don't work. Mm. Okay, but let's not let's not open that can of worms about AI no. and. <laughs> sentience please I, I will say though speaking of ai and like medical stuff i, I remember a segment from uh last week tonight with the john oliver where he talked about ai uh, used to detect cancer cells uh as a very useful thing here and in the very early tests it started identifying rulers as being malignant for cancer because pic- pictures that have rules rulers in it those are you you put mm. the ruler in when mm. there is a cancer thing mm-hmm. so it's like Ruler? Cancer. Mm. Well, we've and talked hopefully about... it's going to be smarter than that. Yeah, so exactly. We have talked many times about AI in previous episodes, and we've talked many times about its challenges. Mm. And a big one is like, you know, if you're going to put shit data in, you're going to get shit data out. That's so maybe it. take out the rulers from the picture. Maybe do. But I'm not going to cover that too much, because otherwise we've talked about this before. Uh, But I do want to say that AI is a tool that is already being used within drug development, for example, for molecular structure prediction and drug and to protein interaction, and its applications will continue to diversify. I am personally very excited for AI-based tools to continue to develop, and I look forward to a future 
where it can be combined with other study models so that we don't need to use animal models anymore. Virtual rat dominance. <laughs> they will beat your ass. So that's our episode on animal testing. A very gruesome and horrifying uh, experience up until very recently and uh, and still today, but hopefully it will not be horrifying very soon. Holds promise. Holds I'm, promise. I, I choose to be optimistic. But um, as you were going to say earlier, every episode that we have, every <laughs> single one of Leech Fest episodes is either fun spooky episode or horrifying crimes of humanity. Like, can we make an episode that is fun and happy, maybe? Let's do... Octopuses and MDMA. Okay. Honestly, I'm a little annoyed that I didn't include it in today's episode for some reason. <laughs> we wanted to keep it short. If I find out that octopuses were euthanized, I'm going to be so upset. If that happens, I'm like, that's it. I, I can't. I'm losing hope of humanity at that point. I, I choose to believe that those octopi are still around. I'm partying. All right. Well, if you've enjoyed our episode, please consider supporting us on patreon and remember to follow us and if your heart's in it consider leaving a review uh spotify lets you do that and it makes my day every time i open up spotify podcasters and i see a little a little notification there that we got a a, a review we got someone says something yeah it's so nice it. we love to see it it's so wonderful to see uh and it also does help the podcast significantly in any case thank you so much for listening to the episode and we will see you in the next one Bye-bye.